If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to look with me in Isaiah chapter 55 this week. We're going to read this whole chapter of Isaiah together. Um, before I do that, I wanted to remind you that we are looking at the whole Bible this year together, that we're spending this entire year looking through the main uh, stories and, and chapters and sections of the Bible together. I say that to you because I want you to know that we shouldn't view the Bible, the Bible as a textbook, something that you read to get principles, something that you read to get ultimately uh, lessons that lead to advice on how to live a good life and how to be a good person. That's not the Bible. The Bible is not a textbook that ultimately gives advice. The Bible is actually a story. It has four parts to it. It is from beginning to end about relationship that is announcing good news, not giving advice, but telling you that there is good news in the world. So we've been looking at those four parts of this story every week. When we started the year, we looked at creation, the first part of the story, and we spent several weeks in creation. And since that time, we've been spending more time thinking about rebellion and redemption, parts two and three of the four-part story. So that you might remember, just to play back what we've done, for uh, go back a few weeks so you can remember what we've done. Um, God brought his people out of Egypt because they couldn't save themselves. And in doing that, he promised them a land and centered their life on a sacrifice that they were to celebrate together. Remember that? Then after he brought them out of Egypt and told them he was going to give them a land, God's people said, uh, I'm not sure we want to go there. So they wandered around and God ultimately brought them into the land and guess what they were centered on? The sacrifice, that God would be in the midst of them, in the middle of them. He would be the center of their lives. That's the whole point of the tabernacle, that it would be in the center of God's people. And it was there that they celebrated the sacrifice. Then you might remember, once they entered the land, we've looked at this the last couple weeks, they didn't do what God told them to do. Matter of fact, there's a verse in the book of Judges that says in a summary way, um, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So God's people were needing a king. And ultimately, we looked last week at one of the kings named David. And it was there that God promised David a dynasty, a kingdom would come from him, and ultimately the king would come. Now I mention all that to you for this. We looked at creation. We've been thinking about rebellion and redemption because every story that we look at, we get a little bit clearer glimpse of rebellion and a little bit clearer picture of the Redeemer that is to come. And sprinkled within all those stories is the fourth part, which is, you remember what it is? Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. So even in the midst of these stories, no matter where we are, we see glimpses of restoration. And if you're thinking and you're still with me, you might remember that restoration takes us all the way back to the garden. The way that God set up the world in creation is how things will ultimately be, except it will be better than creation. Sin will be no more. There'll be no possibility of temptation. There'll be no desire for sin. 
It will be removed completely. So that's our four parts that we're thinking about together and thinking through together. And this morning, you can expect, um, no surprise, a little bit more talk about rebellion, a little bit more talk about redemption, and maybe a little talk about restoration too. We'll talk about how God's going to make things the way he originally set it up in creation. All right, enough summary. Let's look at Isaiah 55. Uh, Listen to this because it's God's word. Because after I finish reading this, it's all downhill. But once you hear this, I hope it'll excite you. Because it's pretty, it's an amazing passage. I feel like I've been saying that a lot the last couple weeks. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord our God, the Lord your God, and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy And be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray together. Lord... Again, we're here not because we hope to get tips on how to live a better life. We're not here because we need another self-help. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow tired and weary of those things. Would you work into us a desire to hear good news? That you actually are real that you have created the world that we live in, that you are marching forward in history and time, acting and moving and spreading your glory everywhere so that you might focus our lives on Christ and that we might understand 
that there is good news in a fallen and broken world, that there's good news for fallen and broken people like us, like me? And would you give us a stronger sense of hope? Would you give us a deeper sense that we can have joyful lives because you've told us where we're going? Lord, work this story into us more and more. Help us to live into it. We pray this for your glory, for our good. We pray this knowing that you will do whatever you want. Thank you. In Jesus' name, thank you. Amen. As you sit here this morning, I want you to think about your life just for a moment. I'm not going to pause. I'm not going to have you turn to your neighbor. Just want you to think about your life for a moment and this past week or this week that you, that you know something of what's coming. As you sit here this morning, what do you hope is true? Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's something with your family. Maybe it's something that you're dealing with inside. Maybe it's something good. I don't know. What is it that you hope is true this morning? My hunch is if you were to write down and, and share, with, share what you wrote down to other people, my, my hunch is if we were to take all those together, that a summary of what you might be thinking about or might be writing down or might be wrestling in your mind and heart is this. You just want things to be better. Whatever it is, you just want something to be better. And I want you to understand that there is good news for us today. And the good news is this. Things can only be better in Jesus. That's it. Jesus is the only one who makes things better. And to understand Jesus means that we may have to alter our understanding of better. That's fair play. But just know that deep down, truly deep down, the only way that things will ever get better is to bring Jesus into our lives. That's it. That's the point this morning. You want things to be better? Jesus is the only one to make things better. So we're gonna look at Isaiah 55 this morning and think about that idea together, that Christ makes things better. He's the only one that can make things better. I want you to know, as we read Isaiah 55, it is not written like a thesis paper, all right? It's not written in the form of it has an introduction and then it has a purpose statement and then it gives reasons and then there is a conclusion, that's not the way Isaiah 55 is written. So you can't think of it that way. It's not a thesis paper, it's more like an onion. Everything in this chapter, every phrase, everything in these 13 verses actually holds together and is a complete whole. So we're going to have to approach Isaiah 55 like an onion this morning. That's what I'm going to try to do. So we're going to take cuts in this onion, and we're going to see layers. And we got three layers to get through together. Make sense? You follow me? Thinking about how Jesus is the only one that makes things better. Look at this, look at this chapter like an onion. We're going to make three cuts. We're going to see three layers to this chapter. So here's layer number one. To begin with, when you look at this chapter as a whole, here's the first cut, the first layer. It begins and ends with metaphors. Do you notice that? Now, let me tell you, when God writes this way, 
when he uses metaphors like hungering and thirsting and thinking about precipitation that falls out of the sky, when God talks in metaphors, he does it for a very specific reason. He wants you to get fired up. He wants you to taste. He wants you to sense. He wants you to feel. He wants you to smell the truth. So he writes in metaphors to fire up our imagination because it's a way that we actually can get the truth into us that encompasses all of our senses so it isn't just our brain. He wants us to taste the truth, feel the truth, smell the truth, so that we can live the truth. So he starts off with this metaphor in the first two verses about hungering and thirsting. And he tells us this metaphor because everyone needs food and water in order to live, right? Any of y'all doing intermittent fasting right now? It's kind of a popular thing. No one. Okay, because, okay, we got some people that are. You know what it's like to hunger and thirst when you're fasting, don't you? You know what it's like to not have meals if we're used to three meals a day. Everyone needs to eat and drink in order to live. We need to give our body fuel. And what God is saying is that because our physical body needs food and drink, our soul also has an appetite. And he's pressing us to think about what is it that you are feeding your soul. In the same way, you have to think about what are you feeding your body. So in thinking about what are you feeding your soul, God wants us to think about what is it that we are taking in that is nourishing and feeding the most important part of who we are. So... Think of it this way. What we're getting at here is what are the things in your life that make the center and the core of your being just excited, to feel like you're worth something, to know that you matter? What are those things that you feed your soul so that you feel like you're important? You sense that you are making a difference, that your life isn't meaningless. What is that that you're feeding your soul? So in order to think about that, maybe go with this. What is it in your life that when someone tells you no, you immediately think, oh, I've got to have that in order for me to live? What is it that when someone tells you no, you instinctively think, reflexively think, I've got to have that? And if it's not no, what is it that someone tells you, okay, you need to slow down with this in your life? You need to step back. You need to check yourself. Maybe this isn't the best thing for you. What is it when someone tells you no, slow down, check yourself, or you immediately think, oh no, I'm not doing that. I've got to have this. Is it control? Is it power? Is it your job and working? Is it wanting to be right or needing to be right? Is it your appearance? Is it your image? Is it your ability to fix things in which someone says, no, you can't fix this, and you're immediately like, oh, yes, I can. What is it that you're feeding your soul? And if you don't like the no question, then go with the yes question. 
What is it that you do that you feel like you need more of? That if you just had more of it, your life would be more meaningful. Your life would be better. Matter of fact, you would feel like you are the greatest person, even though you wouldn't tell anybody, but you would feel inside like you're the greatest person ever. What is it that you would say yes to that you think gives your life meaning? Go through the same things. Is it money? Is it the ability to be right, the need to be right? Is it your image? Is it a relationship? Is it having to receive approval from this or that person or entity? What is it that your heart, your soul says yes to? If I have this and have more of it, I know that I mean something. What are you feeding your soul with? Where are you finding your worth and purpose and meaning? Here's the other metaphor at the end of the chapter, 10 through 13. It's a metaphor of precipitation. God's word is like rain or snow. When rain or snow comes down out of the sky, it always has an effect. And God says that is a parallel, a picture of my word. My word comes from heaven. My word comes down like rain, like precipitation, and it never returns empty. My word goes out, it comes down, and it produces something. It doesn't just fall and do nothing. It doesn't return to me empty, void. It doesn't return to me having accomplished nothing. My word accomplishes things. Now that's, cut, that's layer number one. Here's layer number two. These metaphors are actually anchored in verses three through nine. So if you're someone that really likes propositions and thinking through propositions, this is for you. These metaphors are anchored in verses three through nine. And it's there in these verses three through nine that we learn um, a lot of things about God. And here's a fundamental thing that we learn about God from verses three through nine. God works in mysterious ways. Really, he works in mysterious ways. Ways that are often mysterious to us, beyond us, that we cannot and will ultimately, there will be things where ultimately we will never fully understand because God's ways oftentimes are mysterious to us. Here's one. Look at verse three. God talks about David and what he's promised to do with David. He is referencing 2 Samuel 7. If you were here last week, does that sound familiar? It's what we talked about last week. Isaiah is writing 350 years or more later than what we looked at last week. 350 years and he's referencing 2 Samuel 7 and God's interaction with David. And oh, by the way, no one would have picked David. God works in mysterious ways. David did not have the characteristics of leadership that we typically think someone needs to be a good leader. He was the youngest. He was quiet. He wasn't tall. He wasn't handsome. He didn't have a presence like Saul. He didn't look like every other king, but he was God's man. He was the one that God wanted to be king. 
And if you think that God chose him because he was so amazing, uh, no, that isn't it either. Because he actually committed adultery. Perhaps it is even possible that he forced himself on a woman. That he abused his power because he was king. And then after that, he was an accessory to murder. Literally. And that was God's guy. Beloved, God does not pick people because they look good or feel good or they have some kind of presence or they're charismatic. God looks at the heart and he sees what people are, even if that means that they're a murderer and an adulterer. And he comes into their lives and he changes them. Kind of surprising, isn't it? Sounds kind of mysterious. Because that's not the way that we think of leadership. Then look at verse four and five. It's not just that God goes to David and summons him to be king and promises him a dynasty, promises a kingdom, and promises that a king is going to come from his line. And his name is Jesus. It's not just that. Look at verse four and five. God is actually going to call the nations because of what he, God, is doing through David. That God has raised up David in order to be a spokesman. God is using David so that other nations would then begin to call on God. God is pursuing people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And if that sounds new to you, it shouldn't because this is the way he set up the world. God is pursuing a people. And then if you look at verse six and seven, what do you find? Oh, our God, he is not an egotistical maniac. He is a God that sees that we wonder. He can see that we're all twisted. That's what it means to be wicked and uh, being bent in on ourselves. God sees what we are and invites us to come to him. Is that the kind of God you've heard about? That the God of the Bible who is infinitely holy, sees that you're broken and sees that you're sinful and says, come to me? Or have you heard about the God who's infinitely holy who is there just pointing his finger at you, saying, I don't want anything to do with you. You're a disappointment to me. You're a wreck. You're a mess. Go clean yourself up before you come to me. Because if that's the God you've heard, if that's the way the God of the Bible has been portrayed to you, that's not who he is. The God of the Bible sees us all messed up and broken and says, come to me. And God only says, come to me, because he's coming to us. And that is mysterious. How many of us relate to people that way? Oh, you've wronged me? Well, I want nothing to do with you. Don't talk to me again. Get out of my face. Get out of my space. I don't want to hear from you again. We don't normally say to people who've wronged us, let's make this right. Come on and move toward them, do we? It's hard to do. God works in mysterious ways with David when he looks at our sin and knows who we are. He's gathering people from the nations. And if you need it stated more explicitly, look at verse 8 and 9. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're so far above us that what God is doing in the world is beyond our comprehension. There are some things that we can understand. Some things are very clear. But God wants us to know That he doesn't always work according to what we think he should do. That his thoughts, a lot higher. His ways, 
way higher than ours, way different, way deeper than ours. Maybe you remember this song from a number of years ago, actually written more than 100 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scans his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. There is mystery to God. There are things about God that we can't understand, and these metaphors are anchored in that truth. That leads us to the third layer, because I want you to understand that verses three through nine not only explain those metaphors, but I want you to know that at the deepest level possible of this passage, what is baked into these metaphors is all the content of verses three through nine. So the fact that God is a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God, think David. The fact that God is pursuing a people from all over the world is baked into the metaphors. The fact that God is calling us to himself is baked into the metaphors. The fact that God's ways are not our ways is baked into the metaphors. And that means that we gotta look at the metaphors again because we gotta go deeper. So the metaphor that God gives us of hungering and thirsting is not meant to just invite you to reflect about your life and think about what you are feeding your soul with. It's not just an invitation for you to reflect and think about what you're putting in your soul, what you're feeding your soul. Don't stop there. But God is actually saying he is inviting us to eat and drink what will satisfy our soul. Look at what he says. He says, I want you to come and buy. Come and buy without cost. What? So we're supposed to reflect on what we're putting in our soul and feeding our soul, yeah. And then God says, come and buy? Come buy without price? What in the world is that? He even adds in verse one, hey, you who have no money, you who have no money, come and buy. What is he talking about? God is saying that the real water, the real wine, the real feast, the real bread is found in a person and his name is Jesus. This chapter is actually the culmination of what started at the end of chapter 52. If you've never read this book before, no problem. You can check out. This is for those of you who know your Bibles a little bit better. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus is the suffering servant. 54 tells us about what God's people are supposed to live, how they're supposed to live in light of this amazing suffering servant. And in 55, this is what's gonna happen. 
Because Christ is mentioned throughout the scriptures as living water, true bread. He is the wine. He is going to provide that for us so that God is saying, oh, there is a cost, but you don't pay it. You want your soul to be satisfied? Stop wasting your time and energy and thinking about your job, your relationships, what you're doing in the world as if they are to accomplish your agenda and your goals and all of your emotional things are tied in to all the effort that we are putting into everything that we are doing and God is saying it'll never satisfy you. Why do you keep eating and drinking what doesn't satisfy? He says, come to me and buy without price. Come and buy without cost because you can't pay it. I'm the one who has paid it. Jesus has paid it. You see, our relationship with God and feeding our souls is fundamentally established and grows by grace. That if you really want to grow and you want your soul to be really satisfied, We need grace. We need to jettison our performance. We need to jettison putting all kinds of weight into our resume and how we are building our life. And we need to receive what God has done in paying the price so that we can feed our souls with what will actually satisfy because he has paid the cost. And it comes to us freely. Freely. So in other words, all you need is need. And that's what's so challenging about the gospel, right? It's what's so difficult about Christianity, right? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's not that the bad people are out and the good people are in. It's that God gives grace to the humble, All you need is need. To recognize that you have needs that only God can satisfy is everything. To recognize that I grow in my walk with God based upon the grace of God that I receive and put into action is the message of what Jesus has done for people like you and me that are wayward and rebellious and wicked and twisted and turned in on ourselves. The only thing that heals that is Jesus. The only way that the nations are gathered together is through Jesus. The only way that the kingdom of God cannot fail is to have a king that cannot fail, who even conquered death. His name is Jesus. The reason why God says, come to me, is because Jesus has come to us. You see, he's saying At the deepest level, what really satisfies and the only thing that satisfies is what I give and I give it freely. So come to me if you have no money. Come to me and let go of your money. Come to me with nothing because I'm the only one that can satisfy. And that leads to the last metaphor. Remember the Verses 10 through 13. What's going on there? I mean, remember precipitation. God's word is like precipitation. 
God's word goes out and down and it accomplishes something. It doesn't return void, right? But it goes on to give us the image of water coming from the sky and finding thorns and briars. Did you notice that? Look at it. The word of God comes down and falls on thorn bushes. I don't know about you, but if I were to water the briars and thorns in my yard, do you know what would happen? Those briars and those thorn bushes would grow. I know, shocking. You didn't realize I was such a good, you know, I don't even want to mess up the word, horticulturalist. But here's the truth. Look at the Bible. God says, my word comes down and hits thorns and briars, and what happens? Cedars and myrtles come up. God's word is transformational. It doesn't do what you think it should. It comes down and transforms what is thorny and thick and what we often think is good for nothing. And God comes to the most difficult places, the most prickly things, the most difficult things that cut and scar and hurt to touch and hurt in every conceivable way. And God brings about transformation. His word is that powerful. He is the only one that can affect everything that he is telling us in this chapter. His word comes and doesn't just make the difficult places of our lives into something that is sturdy and strong and productive. As a matter of fact, did you see the other verses? The mountains clapping their hands. Did you notice that? Did you notice that he says that we actually will go out in joy? Beloved, he's talking about our everyday lives. He's saying that day to day you actually can have joy in your life. It's not always going to be easy. But God is saying you can have joy in your life. You can go out with joy because our God is leading us. Our God has gone before us and he is with us and he is leading us so we can be joyful and we can be joyful because there is peace. Because our Jesus is our living water. He is our bread of life and he is the wine. Do you see what he's saying? God is saying through these metaphors and in this one in particular, anchored in verse three through nine, that there is a new you and a new world. That things have been transformed and the day is coming when that will be more and more clear and one day it will be absolutely true. Well, there never will be tears of sadness anymore and joy will be full and thick and eternal. And it's there that God says that when that day comes, look at the last few phrases of the last verse, it will be a sign of his name. Not a sign of his power, although that's true, but a sign of his name, who he is in his essence and in his character. That God is so good that this is what he is going to do. And he is inviting us to participate in that by continuing to come to Christ and to receive more and more grace. So I ask you, beloved, whatever it was that's on your mind of what you wish were true, which my hunch is you just want something to be better, 
I need you to understand that the only way things can be better is with Jesus. And that doesn't mean that all of our hard things go away. It doesn't mean that we will be saved from hard things. It just means that Christ is going to be there with us through it. And that those hard things have meaning and purpose. So I ask you, when, when will be your first opportunity? This week, when is your first opportunity to come and buy without price? When is your first opportunity to take in this water? When is your first opportunity to participate in what God is doing? When is your first opportunity to be strengthened with this truth? When is going to be your first opportunity to try to share with others and try to give to others what you are continuing to receive? Have I gotten over the top yet? When's that first opportunity? Right now.